Today from the Global Lane, Lebanon was known as the Pearl of the Middle East. Now it's on the verge of economic collapse. Border wall, immigration restrictions, why many Hispanic Americans actually support President Trump. After stocks drop over the coronavirus, Bernie or Biden rebound. Top presidential contenders and the U.S. economy. Voila, Asia Bibi in Paris. Time to end blasphemy laws? And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Crisis in Lebanon. Once known as the Pearl of the Middle East, Lebanon may be on the verge of economic collapse. This week, Muslim crowds poured into Beirut streets during a funeral for Hezbollah fighters killed in Syria. Around the same time, members of Lebanon's cabinet met to consider steps to address the country's financial and political crisis. Hezbollah was instrumental in forming Lebanon's new government, but opposition parties say the powerful group's influence is only making the crisis worse. Well, joining us from King Jesus Church in Beirut, Lebanon, is Pastor Gabby El Awad. Pastor Gabby, what has this political and economic crisis in Lebanon meant for Christians and others in the country? What is daily life like for them? Uh, well, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, in the history of Lebanon, we never had something similar. Uh, literally, the country is bankrupted. Um, uh, you know, economically, uh, we, are, we, we just woke up on a day where, because of the accumulated corruption for the last 30, 40 years in the government, uh, we woke up with, uh, with no money in banks. We just have numbers there, and uh, you're not allowed to, um, to get your money out of banks. So uh, everything has been uh, stopped since then, uh, all kind of trade, uh, all kind of uh, businesses. I mean, we're having businesses shutting down, malls are closing, and... Uh, uh, we, we've never had something similar. Um, I don't. I don't remember in the history of Lebanon. They say 1914 during the World War One. I was not there yet, and uh, it's really disturbing because we really don't know what is next. We don't know how to fix that. There is no. Uh, there is no way out. I mean, for us, we know that there's only one way: is to cry out for God. But uh, if you talk about the, I think the government itself, they don't know how to get out of that. Well, I understand that a lot of Christians and others are so fed up that they're leaving the country. What's happening with that? A lot of Christians leaving? That's so true. I mean, this has, this has been the history of the Christians in Lebanon since uh, day one of the war, the last civil war we had, 1975. Uh, many Christians, they were immigrated. They, it was easier for them to just leave and uh, be live in the West, somewhere in Europe or in America, Australia, and also somewhere in Canada, many in, in Canada. And so that, that has been the, the way. And every time there is a crisis, Christians find it easier for them just to leave because they cannot even stand uh, anymore. And they cannot, uh, I mean, the situation is not easy, to be honest with you. If uh, if you think about it, it's not easy. It, living in a country where you're allowed only to have $100 out of your bank account, even if you have millions, you're allowed only to have only $100 a week uh, in a very, a very expensive, highly expensive country to live in. So uh, people find it very hard to live in Lebanon, and they they they, they prefer just just to leave. And Christians mainly are doing so. And this is really sad because uh, you know the population used to be before 1975. The Christians in Lebanon used to be 65 percent of the percentage of the of the population. Right now, we are even less than 30. Well, how then is the Lebanese church responding to help families in crisis? Uh, last time I was there, many Christians were reaching out to help Syrian refugees in your country. Are they still doing that, or has the crisis uh, 
uh, has that subsided with the crisis? Yeah, you know, the Syrian refugees, of course, it's a big, big, uh, you know, uh, everybody is helping Syrian refugees in Lebanon, all the organizations. But as you uh, asked me, you know, very little that are aware of what's going on with the Christian Lebanese. Uh, I know people like in my church, we do help sometimes Syrian Syrian refugees. And I have people who go and and give uh, food and, and, uh, you know, aid for those Syrians that they themselves wish if they can have it themselves, you know, because they're, they're even having even a worse uh, or not not as good uh, uh, situation to, uh, for, to live, you know. Uh, but, you know, those aids are coming speci- specifically for the Syrians, so they cannot take it themselves. So as a church, we're really now trying to bring awareness of the new situation. In, uh, in my church, I have many people who lost their job. Many are now on part-time job because they're not there. They've been asked to, uh, you know, to have a cut down on their wages. So, it's really, it's really difficult. And, and uh, I know that there's over 50% in my church, you know, there's over 50% of my people that they may, they lost their jobs and they, uh, you know, either they they lost some of their money that they make every month. If you used to take like, for example, a $1,000 before, now the $1,000 become 500. What can our viewers, people around the world do to help? Well, you know, of course we need a lot, a lot of, uh, all kinds of help. We need your prayers definitely and we need your uh, uh, financial aid uh, we see that the church in Lebanon needs to be able to help its people to stay. This land needs us to stay. We are the light of God in this place, in this land, and God is depending on us. You know, I believe very much in my heart there is only one way out of whatever we're going through in Lebanon is through the church. You know, the church to be the light and the glory of God on, on uh, in Lebanon. So we need all kinds of aid, you know, a prayer, uh, a group coming to help, and a lot of uh, um, even financial aid, you know, we, we need to see this uh, happening to enable people to stand and, and stay there. Okay, from Beirut, Lebanon, Pastor Gabby Al-Awad. Thank you for your time, Pastor. Thank you. Building the wall and Trump's tough stance on immigration. Apparently, those policies haven't hurt the president with Hispanic voters as much as some people may think. One recent poll shows in a matchup with Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump would win 41% of the Hispanic vote. Trump won 28% of the Hispanic vote in 2016. He'd need to win more than 44% to beat George Bush's record support for a Republican president. Well, here with more is Julio Rivera. Mr. Rivera is editorial director for ReactionaryTimes.com. Julio, first, let's talk about Bernie and Biden. On the Democrat side, it seems the majority of Hispanic voters uh, support those two presidential candidates. Why? You know what? I couldn't be, I, you know, as a conservative Hispanic, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, the one thing that I, I, I do believe in the, in the case of Joe Biden is that there's a lot of name recognition there. Um, you know, obviously he was Barack Obama's vice president. He was on the belt wave now for the better part of the last 50 years. But what has he really done? What has been his signature piece of legislation that he's either written or sponsored that was ever had really a positive effect for the Hispanic community? I mean, I'm, I'm at a loss to try to figure out what that is. And in terms of Bernie Sanders, I mean, you're talking about somebody who romanticizes the Cuban Revolution and somebody who honeymooned out in the Soviet Union. And, you know, people of uh, Hispanic descent, especially those from South America, know 
just exactly what the dangers of socialism are. And I think that they're the last people that really want to see that those types of policies ever come to America. And even more to the point, you know, when you talk about the, you know, the fact about the whole immigration issue, there's been so many people who have suffered through bad policies, you know, that are that have been implemented in South America and have fought and have risked everything and, you know, done everything they had to do to get to America. And, and so many people did it the right way and they did they went through legal channels. And I think that they resent a lot of, you know, the, the Democrats positions on, you know, basically illegal residents and, you know, everything that they are able to get in America, basically shirking the rules and skipping the line and, you know, putting themselves at the front and just walking into America. And many African-Americans are, of course, uh, leaving the Democratic Party and the walk-away movement. Often pro-family policies uh, have made the difference there. So how about for Hispanic-Americans? Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, I think that uh, Hispanics tend to be social conservatives, which is something that the Democrats try to play down. But the fact of the matter is many of them are Catholic. Many of them are pro-life. You know, they don't believe in the whole abortion on demand movement. They believe in traditional marriage. They believe in traditional values, quite frankly. And, you know, the Democrat Party right now tries to pander to every little, um, you know, uh, every little uh, minor uh, micro group out there that, you know, has different uh, sets of beliefs. They, you know, they're pushing this whole transgenderism thing. They, they, they're the ones that were at the forefront of the gay marriage movement. And th these are values that just don't correspond with what Hispanics um, in America and Hispanics abroad really believe in. And how important is abortion in the right to life issue? Oh, it is very important. You know, I mean, I, I know the Hispanics, they, if you get out of New York City, if you get all out of the coastal areas where there's a, you know, just a lot of extreme liberalism in general, and you talk to, you know, the average Hispanic person, you know, the, the average Hispanic person, deplore, you know, detests the, the idea of, of abortion and especially abortion on demand. They don't want to be, you know, as legal American taxpayers. They don't want their tax money going towards fundings, you know, something that, that they abhor, you know, something that's a sin, something that, you know, indirectly, a lot of them feel indirectly that they're, the government's basically forcing them to, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, become a part of this whole abortion on demand system. I mean, you have, you know, the federal government and even, you know, unfortunately, you know, Trump's signed some bills that has had some uh, Planned Parenthood funding in there. And that's something I think that the conservatives, the, the real conservatives that are running for the House and running for the Senate, the legislators, the ones that craft these bills have to really get on that and make sure that we're not providing any funding, any government funding towards abortion any longer. And what advice would you give Julio to this president and Republicans uh, to win over Hispanic voters in November? You know, don't pander to them. You know, the policies that they've come up with, the deregulatory measures, the lower taxes, you know, all of those things play better for Hispanics who are, who are entrepreneurial. You know, they want to they wanna go into private business in America and they want to be profitable and they don't want to be gouged by the IRS. And, you know, they don't want to have all this, uh, you know, uh, regulatory red tape to try to go through to turn a profit in this country. So, you know, the policies of the Republican Party 
aren't necessarily geared towards any subsection of people. It's basically, you know, anybody that's in this country has the opportunity to be fruitful, be successful and prosper under the policies of the Republican Party. It's not we're going to make special rules for these people. We're going to make special rules for these people. We're going to build, you know, 68 different bathrooms for everybody who identifies as all these other, you know, random genders. You know, the Republican Party is the party of Americans and Americans come in all colors, all sexes, all religions. And it's about time that, you know, um, uh, Americans across the board subscribe to the idea that one set of rules that works best for everyone, which is really the way of the Republican Party, is best for America. Okay. Julio Rivera, editorial director for ReactionaryTimes.com. Thank you for providing those insights. Thank you so much, Gary. Despite Joe Biden's big win on Super Tuesday, taking nine of 14 states in the Democratic presidential primaries, Bernie Sanders is still a political force to be reckoned with. Most political pundits think the Democrats may be headed to a brokered convention in Milwaukee this summer. No one will possess enough delegates to win the 1991 needed to gain the party's nomination on the first ballot. So what would a Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden presidency mean for the American economy? Already, Wall Street may be giving us a clue. Well, here with us from the city of brotherly love is national radio and TV host of Financial Issues, Dan Celia. Now, Dan, you, you may be coming to us from the city of brotherly love, but I know not far from you is New York City, Wall Street. Yes. I don't see a lot of brotherly uh, love there for Bernie Sanders. So how's his candidacy and Joe Biden's uh, big win expected to affect the markets in the days ahead? Well, you know, it's very interesting, uh, Gary. We've been seeing headlines after uh, Super Tuesday talking about, you know, the markets are up, Biden, you know, wins, uh, doing great. And they made it sound like that the markets were up because Biden was victorious. The reason why the markets are up, make no mistake about it, because you know, markets aren't stupid. They're pretty smart and they're very good predictors. But the markets were up because Bernie lost. And it took out an incredible piece of uncertainty out of the market. You know, markets were down when Bernie had that big run in Nevada, did so well, and markets panicked. They were thinking, oh my gosh, is it possible that this guy could get elected? And Tuesday was a huge relief for the markets, and that's why they're up. How about for the economy, Dan? Because CBN News did an analysis of most of uh, Sanders' proposed social programs, and we found the cost over 10 years would exceed $60 trillion. Some say it could be as much as $90 trillion. So what would a Sanders presidency mean, not just for the markets, but for the U.S. economy overall? Well, it's, it's impossible, Gary. You know, I, I mean... It's impossible for it to ever be implemented unless we just make a conscious decision to go bankrupt. That kind of cost is impossible to sustain. Now, you could tax 100% of the top 10%. You could put 100% tax on them, and it still wouldn't be enough to pay for his program. It, it is just the only way that it has even uh, uh, any possibility of working would be incredibly high taxes from the very poorest of poors to 
uh, on up. And even then, it obviously wouldn't work because the economy would shut down and there wouldn't be a whole lot to be taxing. How about Joe Biden, Dan? What would he mean for the yeah, economy? So, yeah, Joe, Joe Biden, if he had a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, would be devastating for the economy as well. I don't think Joe Biden is, he, he would have to surround himself with extremely uh, con fiscally conservative, very smart individuals to try to deal with the economy. I don't think he's gonna do that because I don't think the left wing side of the party is gonna allow him to do it. They are gonna dictate to him everything that, he's, that he is gonna do. And he has already shown that he is going to fold. And I don't think they really understand, liberals and leftists, uh, how market right. economics works. Uh, finally, coronavirus, Dan, a record drop on Wall Street, more than 4,000 points last week. Is that an overreaction? I, I think it is. I think it's uh, uh, an overreaction. It's a reaction based on the fear that the media has, you know, uh, stirred up. It really is an overreaction, and all the numbers point to that. When we look at just what happens during a normal course of a flu, uh, it, is, it is overreacting. But I don't know that it's a bad thing in the sense that if it does, it's always good to be ready and to be prepared. But look, I think what the Federal Reserve has done, I, I think, is an overreaction. I'm very disappointed in the cuts that they've made. I'm the only one... Uh, free market capitalist that's in that camp. But I, I think it was a big mistake because we're reacting to a temporary, a black swan event, something that is un unpredictable, and we are reacting to that. It's going to pass. Now, it may not pass for eight months. It may pass in two weeks, but it is going to get better. And whatever the market is is doing right now as a result of that, it's going to pass very quickly. We are going to have recovery. It is going to be healed. And the only thing that is going to derail the recovery from what we have right now is a November election. Okay, and we'll have to wait and see what happens there. So, Dan Celia, always good to talk to you, Dan. Have you share your insights. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate being on with you. Asya Bibi, the Pakistani Christian mother who spent more than nine years in prison on charges of committing blasphemy, made her first public appearance since being freed last year. Bibi recently talked to reporters in Paris after meeting with French President Macron. Macron's government reportedly offered Bibi religious asylum in France. She and her family have been living in Canada since she was acquitted and allowed to leave Pakistan in May 2019. Now, Bibi told the online French Catholic news service, Alatea, she prayed daily and read the Bible regularly during her imprisonment. She says her suffering was a trial sent by God. She explained that Psalm 91 encouraged her the most during her incarceration. The Lord is my refuge. Although radical Muslims still threaten her life, Bibi says she hopes someday to return to Pakistan. She says she'd like people to work together to end the country's blasphemy law. Folks, this archaic law must be abolished. Pakistan's blasphemy law was Islamized in the early 1980s under the Zia el Haq regime. It has three main sections. 295A is insulting a religion, mainly Islam. 
295B is blasphemy against the Muslim holy book, the Quran. 295C, blasphemy against Muhammad. The maximum sentence for those found guilty of blasphemy against the Quran is life imprisonment. The punishment for violating subsection C, blasphemy against the Muslim prophet Muhammad, is mandatory death by hanging. Whatever happened to freedom of speech or freedom of religion? There's no such thing under Islam. Folks, I love Pakistan and the Pakistani people, but this law has become a tool of radicals and those who want to level charges against anyone they don't like especially if there's a property dispute, argument, or disagreement. The accuser yells, blasphemer. Crowds gather around, the accused is arrested, considered guilty without any solid evidence against them. Judges are intimidated, threatened with death if they rule in favor of the accused. It's only when cases go to the Pakistani Supreme Court when we see acquittals, like the one in the case of Asya Bibi. But also in the case of Asya Bibi, the innocent defendant often remains in prison for years before they're finally freed. And sometimes militants kill them upon release. During the period 1987 to 2017, 238 Christians were jailed on blasphemy charges in Pakistan. But guess what? 516 Ahmadis and 720 other Muslims were also imprisoned. Yes, Christians have been singled out, because while there have been nearly 500 fewer blasphemy cases for them compared to Muslims, Christians are only about 2% of the Pakistani population. A bit disproportionate, don't you think? And while the blasphemy law needs to go, and many Pakistanis support removing the law from the books, few will stick their neck out and be advocates for change. Muslim governor of Punjab, Salman Taseer, did that. He was assassinated in 2011. Taseer's murderer was eventually hanged. Also murdered in 2011 was Christian Minority Affairs Minister Shabazz Bhatti. His assassin is still unknown. So if abolishing the blasphemy law at this time is not possible, what then is the solution? Perhaps a new law that would imprison anyone who falsely accuses another Pakistani of blasphemy. That may be the best Asya Bibi and other Pakistanis could hope for at this time. Bibi says her greatest joy has been bowing down to the greatness of God. So let's join her in bowing down to the greatness of God. Let's continue to pray for Asya and her family. And let's not forget to pray for Christians and others unfairly imprisoned in Pakistan and elsewhere around the world. Pray that God's justice prevails. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.